Welcome to another episode of Bringing Down the Grindhouse, a podcast where we discuss horror in media. But today we've got something a little bit different. We're going to do one of our special non-horror episodes where we're going to discuss the Animatrix and the Fifth, fifth Element. element. Yep. How's it going, John? I'm going... I'm doing well. I feel like these two got really into um, like heavier topics because it's science fiction, and so they always explore these really heavy topics. But... The Fifth Element is kind of unique because it does include a lot of comedy while you're watching it. Um, but I've seen both of them a bunch of different times. Too many times. Uh, I've seen them like over a dozen times each, I think. I, so, I, like, I, that's fair. Super familiar with both of them. The Fifth Element I watched when I was a kid. It was like one of the ones my mom showed me. Mm-hmm. And it had like younger Bruce Willis where he actually has hair. I, I, yeah, <laughs> right? I, I actually remember specifically being over at my like... I, I will always remember like the my nice little nice little Indian family that lived next door. I was really good nice. friends with their son and hung out with them all the time. But I remember they were watching Fifth Element, and I remember specifically coming into the movie with the stones being pulled out of that lady. Yeah, he's like pulling them out of her stomach. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But we'll get to that in a little <laughs> bit. But that's where I remember from the movie, and then I have rewatched it multiple times because it's great. Right. So good. Uh, so to start, we're gonna go with the Fifth Element first. So the Fifth Element came out in 1997. So it's a, it's a little bit older now, definitely like a late 90s movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you watch it now, and the special effects kind of hold up. They're doing pretty good because they had people just in suits for yep. like most of the aliens. The only parts that are like really digital is some of the space stuff. But and some of like the head change, like the CGI on like the head, like when the... Uh, it still looks pretty good. Yeah, it still looks good yeah. for what it is, but you can still, it's still CGI. Yeah. You can still yeah. tell. Um, it was directed by Luke... Uh, Luke Besson. This is the guy who did uh, Lucy, the one with um, Scarlett Johansson, and then the other one called uh, Valerian in the the city of like a thousand planets. Basically, it was like a, another sci-fi story that he adapted into a script and brought it out. So he's definitely been in the sci-fi genre. One of the cool things about uh, the Fifth Element is that he wrote it in high school. He was like sixteen yeah. years old when he wrote the script for it, and so it's it's interesting to me that like like years later he like ends up getting it like finally put up and got it going and got a green light for it really is like its own unique story like it Mm -hmm. stands on its own and it didn't need too much filled in for you to be able to enjoy the story and i think he did that really well with the script writing where they had a lot of context clues just from what they were telling you and the areas that they were living in but nothing else is really super important besides that you just knew that he was like in new york and Mm -hmm. technically i guess like what would be brooklyn (laughs) <laughs> he was like in a certain part of Brooklyn. I mean, and Bruce Willis has that like accent kind of too. So <laughs> yeah. he's like def- very definitely like you're like, oh yeah, he's in like Brooklyn, but like yep. you're 3000 Brooklyn. Uh, so I thought this film was interesting because after watching it after so many years and then analyzing it again with all of like the tools I got from school, um, it was interesting for the time period that it came out in for being in like the 90s mm-hmm. they were really dealing with like kind of larger ideas for the film itself for sci-fi but most sci-fi does that anyway mm-hmm. um what i liked was introducing this character um as he was pretty much like kind of just down on his luck he was forcefully like retiring himself he didn't want to be like part of the military unit that he was part of before um and like they don't really explore too much of that but it seems like he's kind of just over it and wants to drive yeah. a cab instead like he's kind of like he's in hiding almost yeah. yeah and he keeps getting calls from his like previous uh i'm guessing it's like one of his older unit mates or someone mm-hmm. he knows well um that or the the person who owns the cab company 
yeah. he calls him finger he like mm-hmm. calls him on the phone and like constantly is like, "What are you doing? Where are you like? Yeah. <laughs> like, how's the cab? Like, is it okay?" Yeah. <laughs> and so he keeps calling him for that. But the story basically starts with him trying to uh, just go about his regular day. <laughs> I love I love all of the little like the little subtle hints in his apartment and stuff that uh, that really represent the society that he's in. Like the two circles that are on the wall that say "Stay, keep clear." Yep like is definitely representative of like almost like a dystopian sort of sort of setting in a way where you have to your living space has to be be able to comply with authority oh yeah every bit of their story is that way so they Mm. live in this uh like policed state where the police can go anywhere at any time and they constantly search so they needed to put in measures that made it easier for Mm -hmm. them so like they can see through your front door if you like put your hands there they want you to stand there and Mm -hmm. like be Mm non-threatening even his cab has like a hook where the police car can hook onto it if they're trying to like arrest someone, which they use later when they're trying to arrest Lilu. Mm-hmm. But all of it, what I think what was hilarious is that it's essentially like the extreme form of capitalism that was happening. Yeah. Because they even had product placement with McDonald's. Yep. They did, they did. <laughs> which no, I'm yeah. sure they paid for and like they got yeah, in there. Exactly, it. Yeah, exactly. Great it's, joke. Yeah, exactly. But it's still, it's still like it suits the, the setting. Right. Uh, another thing in his apartment that I love, which is just a little, it's a really small thing. It doesn't matter. But I yeah. love that he has his like, his like, uh, you only get four a day or it's like, it's time yeah, to quit his cigarettes. like his cigarettes, but, and they're all backwards. Yes. He lights from the, he lights from the filter end. I noticed that too. Uh, I wonder if they did that so they wouldn't get in trouble with like tobacco companies. I know that would, that's pretty funny. Actually, I feel like, I feel like a tobacco company would sue them if they tried to say like tobacco is bad for you. Yeah. If they tried to have that, in they the got movie. the lobbying money to be like, fuck you and your movie. Yeah. <laughs> We're not going to have you saying tobacco is bad. So they must've flipped it so that it just looks like they can't tell what it is. Mm-hmm. But yeah, at, at first, when I first watched it, I thought he was lighting it backwards. Yeah, he, he, he definitely is. And it, but it's not like, I think the cigarettes were just made that way. Yeah, they're just made they that just, way. Like, it's super the, weird. The tobacco company wanted it to be relevant, so they're like, we'll just flip it. Well, what I liked, too, was that in the tiny apartment, it was used, like, the space was used really well. So, like, his bed kind of folds into, like, a drawer. Mm-hmm. His fridge goes down and becomes his shower. <laughs> and so like and then they all get like washed and like cleaned over again and then he, but like it, it goes in as soon as he stands up and yeah. then he has like more space to walk around in there but he's also got his cat which is kind of funny and the cat seems to like really like to watch television and so this is how they introduce the contest that he wins later mm-hmm. is already being advertised on the tv like yep. hey go and like apply and see if you can win this and it also features ruby rod who ends up being a character later you can hear his voice Mm -hmm. (laughs) all through there and so he doesn't really know what's going to happen oh chris tucker's so great yeah (laughs) but it's like um but i think even before that they have uh they have the scene with the archaeologist in the like the 50s yeah it's in the very beginning of the movie yeah and it's like 40s or 50s it's like hundreds of years it's like a couple like a hundred years in the past and whatnot man yeah, cool. yeah, yeah, because they they move forward three hundred years. Yeah, there we go, three hundred years. They move yeah. forward three hundred years from that point, but before they do that, they establish that the stones that are going to be used later in the movie have been kept safe on Earth by like a priest and his, uh, like his alien group. buddies. Yeah, well, it's like they basically entrusted him and anyone else to save the stones there, and then to like pass their knowledge on to anyone else that they teach, mm-hmm. and so they're like the stones aren't safe here anymore so we're gonna take them and so they show up and take the stones from the planet but they also leave a little key behind so that they can like show it's like out of the the robot's finger mm-hmm. basically when he gets cr- <laughs> for some reason he gets crushed in the wall which is really he weird. gets well he gets well he gets shot 
and it slows him down because the the younger well, kid freaks out that there's oh, aliens right. here because none of them know that they're coming and then the priest is going to investigate the temple that's archaeologists are exploring right and then the aliens show up they're just like who the fuck are you <laughs> weird right and then right. so um but yeah he's like walking out and the kid freaks out and shoots at the alien guy and then he can't get out before the doors close so he gives them the key and then dies i never i just i think the only part i didn't understand was why did the wall start closing anyway probably something that's like time to keep it secret or yeah something is along it like a, i guess it could be like a booby it maybe trap. only opens when they're there it's like a booby trap i guess yeah. mm-hmm. where they're like gonna gonna it's gonna close once they've retrieved yep. everything out of there mm-hmm. which they do they get all the stones and they get what i guess was the fifth element prior yeah inside of like a it's like a tomb sarcophagus she's in like a, yeah she's in a sarcophagus and uh on the ship that she's kept on it explodes and then they well you know what i was like wondering hand. about this when i was looking at it there's no discernible features on the sarcophagus that tells you if it's a man or a woman yeah of course no they don't yeah, yeah, yeah it's very general well i mean eventually they do like quote-unquote remake her mm-hmm. and then but the but up until that point everyone who is in the movie and is talking about this perfect being they're assuming it's a man mm. they keep saying he mm-hmm. whenever they were referring and then they they remake the perfect being and it's a her and it's and it's miliovic's character mm-hmm. which has a really long name yeah which is kind of funny because she says it at one point and then he's like is there anything shorter like, <laughs> and, she, like uh... and then you call her lilu and that's how she gets her name yep. but so so they get all of the stones out they leave and then he's like all right i want to pass down the knowledge and then jumps forward 300 years and then you have the president which is hilarious because one he's black so like that was like in the 90s way before like any of this actually happened so they had a black president before that was actually a thing with obama mm-hmm. but it was the guy from friday it's debo oh yeah that's right i know i've seen him from somewhere <laughs> <laughs> he's, I, think, I feel like he's just gonna steal my bike now whenever yeah, i see him it's <laughs> so weird i had seen friday of course so i was like that's fucking debo oh and, that's so funny uh, oh my god it's such a character change but he's really good yeah like it's an interesting take on what the president would be at that time because he's really understanding. He's like open to opinions. He even is open to like the priest opinion after something happened. And then he even like will call people and tell them like congratulations and take the time to go visit. So like he's a good president by most like means and terms like when you get to see him. And then the whole cast up until that point is really diverse. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of people of color in the film like right from the beginning. And then uh, I mean, it does focus in on Bruce Willis and Miljovic, but it's mm-hmm. still like, uh, I mean, on Lilu. It was interesting, though, to see how they sort of dealt with their, like, space politics, mm-hmm. which is like, what are they going to do if something enters their, like, space? Mm-hmm. And at first, they're like, okay, we're not going to do anything. But then the general's like, we got to shoot it first and kill it, <laughs> yeah. which is Bomb interesting. It. <laughs> yeah, because it's like, he's a very gun-ho general, which makes sense, because I feel like that always sort of happens. Mm-hmm. You end up having like a really stern and tough general who wants to take care of it by just killing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was interesting because this evil, it's technically like evil incarnate. Like mm-hmm. it's supposed to be like the most evil thing in the universe. And it chose to just like make a planet out of itself so it could absorb things. Yep. So it could eat everything. Yeah. So like it, it does that and it ties in with, the main villain of the film, uh, Zorg, who's played by Gary Oldman, yeah. which is fucking great. He's such a chameleon for all of the the roles that he takes on. Mm-hmm. And he does a really good job with this one, showing to be like a really unhinged kind of person. Um, so they get, they essentially encounter it and then they're not sure what to do. And this is when those aliens, I think they're called the Monoshiwans. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who take the stones. Oh, they're, okay. they're returning and being like, they're on their way back because they know the evil showed up. And so this is when the priest tells the president, like, oh, they've returned. 
and you got to let him like safe passage. But then some mercenaries hired by the villain kill all of the monosheans. Yeah, to try to get the stones back. But you don't find out until a little bit later that the stones were given to the diva, to the the blue lady who is mm-hmm. like uh, basically like a singing diva of her like time in the universe, mm-hmm. and everyone knows who she is, which is great. And so that's sort of like how all of the story ties in. But first, they have to like get Lily's character introduced, which brings in Bruce Willis's character, uh, Corbin Dallas. Mm-hmm. And so they bring him in because he's just a regular cab driver, and she literally falls into his cab. Yep. Because she uh, she Big gets boom. yeah she gets <laughs> she gets made in the lab. I love the when they're taking the hand in. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is the survivor. And he's like, it's not much of a survivor, but okay. <laughs> and then they explain all these crazy science that doesn't make any sense. Mm. Like, this is the only bit of, like, sci-fi science that you're like, none of this makes sense. Because <laughs> he was, like, he was essentially saying that, like, instead of, like, 24 chromosomes, they had, like, 200,000. Oh, no. She was, he was commenting on her DNA structure. Yeah. And because she's the fifth element. She has, like, an abnormal yeah. amount of an it's abnormal like amount of perfect, chromosomes. is essentially what they're getting yeah. at. Yeah. I love when they're in the black light. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and his face is all like, covered in Sounds him. like a freak of nature to me. And he was like, yeah, can't wait to meet him. And like, they <laughs> both look fucking weird. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. And uh, they're like basically all glowing underneath the black light. And all the blood. You can see the blood splatters on his face. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so they go in and they put the hand into this, uh, this sort of machine that can reconstruct uh, like human tissue and things like that. And so they reconstruct her and find out that it is a woman and that it's Lilu. And so she is sort of like immediately conscious of what's going on. Like she's really smart, but can only speak that one language, which is supposed to be like the divine language for them. And so she eventually learns everything by just like getting onto the computer and just absorbing all of the knowledge, which is kind of a cool way to like skip her like learning curve. Mm -hmm. She was just like, oh, she was on the computer. She went A through Z and figured out everything that was associated with it. And then she didn't get to like the rest of it, which is why she doesn't know certain words. It's really cheesy. But that's how she meets Corbin. What did you think about like their sort of interactions at first when she's like in the car and they can't speak to each other and he's like immediately in love with her? Uh, yeah, right. He just like he has like that love at first sight moment. Um, she's definitely like desperate at this point because she's being chased by the yeah. cops and by the organization and everything. So she's basically the government and the cops are after her. So she kind of expects Corbin to help her. And she sort of has no one else to turn to at the moment. So she turns to like the only... She's not very good with English at first either. She learns fast though. She learns really fast. So it's like she was able to, you know, put together like, oh, please help. And she like can only say that to him. I I thought that was... It was a good way to introduce her character. Her just like she literally falls through his ceiling into his life. Right. Basically. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like an angel from heaven. They were laying on the romance really heavy for their characters. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and it was interesting because I didn't feel like it was cheesy when you first saw it. No. Um, right up until probably the very last scene where they're, like, pretty much just making out inside mm-hmm. of the the rehabilitation yeah. tube that they're laying in. <laughs> yeah. I was like, up until that point, I felt like it was pretty good. And then I was like, wow, this is really cheesy. And that's how they ended. <laughs> they ended on, like, like them making out and being like, oh, like, they need some more time. Like, five more minutes? <laughs> five more minutes? Yeah. <laughs> Um, but that's like the yeah. comedy of the movie, though, because that's yeah, why it, it, really gets, it really does mix the serious and the humorous together and like the adorable cheesiness of things as well. So it, it's, it's a charming movie. Um, I did think it was interesting that at first everyone was assuming the perfect being was going to be a man mm-hmm. and then it turns out to be a woman. 
And so they're already making a statement with that alone, being like in their universe, out of anything that could possibly be made, the most perfect being is a woman. But some people have criticized it because it's a white woman. But, I mean, it's like there's only I, – I think you kind of have to pick your battles with that one because they mm. already made it a woman. And so that is already a good, strong statement. I don't think he was considering too much on that when he was making it. Um, and I think he was looking for a certain role, and mm-hmm. which he filled with, with Mila Jovovic because she'd already been an action star mm-hmm. at that point, and she would fit well for that. Um, but it does – I do understand the critique that you could have had a different person be the main person there. But either way, it's interesting that not only is she a woman, but she doesn't really seem to care – for any of their expectations and their sort of assumptions of who she is, Mm -mm. especially when they're like thinking that she's very fragile and that she's going to be like a character that needs to be taken care of. But at one point she even tells Corbin, she's like, no, I'm going to take care of you because I know how to do like all of these things. Mm -hmm. And so it sort of switches where she ends up being a really integral part of the story because she pushes the narrative along with her fighting. Um, And then it sort of comes full circle where the way to complete that perfect being is that, that they have to experience love. And so that's like the it's like the quote unquote cheesy romantic part of it where but I mean what there's a lot of sci fi movies that do that. Yeah. Like have you seen um God, what is it, Interstellar? Yeah, a long time ago. I saw it like one The time. basically what Interstellar boils down to is that the thing that saves um Matthew McConaughey's character is the love for his daughter. Like that love can span across universes and different dimensions, and that's what saves him in the end. Mm-hmm. And people were upset. They were like, "What? Well, how are you just gonna throw out all the science fiction and be like the thing that saves you is love?" <laughs> <And you're> like, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> so it's not an uncommon thing to do. But it was interesting that that was a piece of being a perfect being that right. you couldn't exist without experiencing a love for someone else. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of what they're getting at at the end of it. Sort of like sort of like experiencing love from another or just experiencing yeah. love in general is a way to co- like you can complete yourself in a yeah, way. Yeah, because they're not like they're not like immediately having sex. No. You know, he's not like being really derogatory with her. He does try to kiss her, which is hilarious because she puts a gun to his head. And he's like, oh, okay, shouldn't have All done right. that. Uh, yeah, yeah. So sorry. <laughs> and then he asks the priest, like, oh, she said something to me, but I don't know what she said. And then apparently she said never without my permission. Yeah, that was And the so quote. he was like, oh, okay. And, like, so it was, a, it was a quick lesson on consent that they just kind of threw in in there. Yeah. And then, like, just moved on so that mm-hmm. they didn't, like, stay too heavy on it. But, I mean, by the end of it, they're – bonding some some of these things i don't even know if they're always if they're always like political or social statements sometimes right. i think it's just these are just how the characters are interacting like corbin corbin definitely seems like a guy who in his like past with the like, military and whatnot that he would be one of those people to kind of go for it yeah sort of deal and so i feel like that's what his character does and then he figures out real fucking fast with a gun in his yeah. face that he <laughs> over fucking stepped his boundaries definitely. right there and you know what i mean because like he could have also fallen into the like action hero kind of trope where i saved the girl I think maybe she likes me now, blah, blah, blah. Let's just kiss her. And yeah, not even... it's true. He does, in fact, leave her alone. Yeah, at first. He, yeah. yeah, he leaves, and then uh, they go back and encounter him because he gets the tickets to yep. go to, um, God, what is it, the the planet? There's someone that pulls that for him, though. Yeah. Someone makes that happen. I think well, the military makes him win, basically, because they want to send him on like a – A mission. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So the guy's like, I know the perfect guy. And he's like, of course, it's Corbin. So he goes mm-hmm. and rigs the contest so that he wins mm-hmm. um, and try to make it inconspicuous. And so the priest and Lilu go and steal the tickets from him. But mm-hmm. it isn't really that successful. <laughs> and so they end up doing that. So that was, that was interesting that they had um, sort of the underlying commentary there. And also to consider – I think the only thing that was kind of troubling was that – uh, 
part some of it seemed like it was made from the male gaze and another part seems like it changed it like mid film and i don't know if it was just like a change in direction or something but at a certain point lilu was not being seen that way and it was instead like one of the main action stars for the movie and like was capable of taking care of herself so that was interesting and then corbin actually goes through some sort of uh change he like changes from the beginning of the film where he is kind of like a, a hot-headed kind of person and is more wanting to like jump into whatever he's doing and then he sort of understands that he needs to communicate with her and understand he, he develops um from being sort of like this like because at the very beginning of the movie he's very like down yeah super down he's like upset that he's already gone through three cigarettes in the last four minutes <laughs> that he's been awake right uh his like cab gets fucked up yeah by well poor poor girl lilu falls through his fucking cab yeah. and then he gets in like an accident i think before that also well I think. uh so yeah well he starts the day with like five points yeah and then by the time lilu falls into his car he has like two or like one point left <laughs> yeah. so he's been through some shit through the day where he's just losing his license points yep. and would possibly like lose his, his license entirely but he does end up helping her mm-hmm. and is like oh fuck like he basically says it too where he's like finger's gonna kill me which is the guy who owns the cab yeah because that cab just gets wrecked yep and he does this escape and they hide like on the very lower levels of the city, which is like foggy. It's like, oh, uh, it's like, it's like sooty. And yeah. like, it looks like what LA will be in like a few years. Right. You keep, <laughs> you keep building on top of if it. You keep yeah. building on top of it. You'll get out of the smog. Well, you know what? It makes sense for New York because New York has been doing that. Yeah. They've been building on top of old ruins and they keep doing it. Mm-hmm. And so at some point, I would guess, yeah, that might happen. Eventually, they're just going to, yeah. Futurama, just put a new street over yeah, the Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and just keep going up. Um, I, what I thought was interesting, too, was from the filmmaking sort of uh, the perspective, they had really interesting music right from the beginning. And mm-hmm. then even during that chase scene, they have an interesting piece of music, which I couldn't even place into a genre. But it like it almost sounded like Indian, mm-hmm. um, like something you would hear in India and sort of like a tribal piece of music. And then it switches to like rap at some point. And so, like, they keep going through all these different things. So they were trying to really push home the idea that at this point, the universe is really diverse. Yeah. And they have a lot of people and a lot of different things going on. It only makes sense that yeah. it would be that way. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like it, it. everything – I never questioned the people that were in the movie. No. Everyone in the background. Just like, no. yeah, that sounds right. Like, there's, the, there's the Chinese guy, like, rolling his, like, ramen cart around. I love that. <laughs> I, yeah. And then he, like – I love I love the scene where he back – where he's, like – at the window and you think that he's at like a shop and then he pulls out like oh fuck corbin's just in his house like he rolled up to his window (laughs) yeah well he's in one of like the traditional boats that they would would go around around in a river but it's like yeah i don't this is gonna sound bad but i don't i feel like it's george takei that's on there but i don't think that it is no not at all it's definitely not is it it's a similar character yeah he looks uh, he just looks similar i mean that's just i'm a see i'm bad well no it's a it's a it's like an archetype like yeah. he, he ends up being this sort of person who's really optimistic. Mm-hmm. He even tells him, like, I'll bet you lunch that you've got good news. And it turns out he got fired from the cab company. So he's like, <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and, like, gives him free lunch and goes away. Um, but he was like, it's fine, man. Like, you know, I was not expecting to do this. And he's like, oh, that's good. Like, you know, you've, you're seeing some good out of the bad. Right. And then he kind of moves away. So that was funny. Yeah, I liked I liked those moments because it was able to slow down the story. And then you get to know a little bit more about him. And at that point, you know, he's getting fired. But the reason he got fired was because there's a conversation with Zorg and with uh, one of his, like, associates or his henchmen who is like, oh, we're getting people bothering us about all of the money, so we need to fire some people. And he's like, let's fire, like, 500,000 people. And he's like, fire a million. (laughs) 
<laughs> and part <laughs> of the people he fired is Corbin. Yep. So that's why he got fired. And it wasn't necessarily because of what he was doing. So it's just bad luck for him up until that point. And so this is sort of like he's the lowest he could probably be. He like got divorced and yep. it was like not with his ex-wife, who apparently ran off with the lawyer who was doing their divorce. <laughs> he was like, I've only gotten two messages in this thing. And the first one was from my wife telling me she's leaving me. The second one was from the lawyer who said he's leaving with my wife. <laughs> so like he's gotten nothing but bad news in that thing, which is why he never checks it. And so it's why he doesn't know that he got the tickets and won. Cause the guy shows up there before he even gets any of that. But before that, everyone knows that he's won. Even his mom calls him and mm-hmm. it's great hearing his mom. Cause she's like, I can't I, – I felt like she had, like, a Jersey accent. Yeah, she totally does. And yeah. was, like, just harassing him. Like, why don't you ever hang out with me? You can't call me. I should have been the one who goes on this trip. Like, I pushed you out for, like, nine months. And it was just, like, just so funny. She's, like, irritating him and it's like, really being this mom who, like, of course loves him. But is, like, really getting into, like – just mm-hmm. like uh, um like what most parents do well they'll start teasing you or they will be like why don't you call me you never call me never. <laughs> and so it gets into that and everyone knows and so this is when uh the priest and and uh lilu they like basically break into his place and uh <laughs> like steal the tickets from him one of the funnier things i think was uh i think we mentioned it before but it was like sort of product placements where they had like mcdonald's and they had the cops who were in there who were like, I'm not doing anything until I'm done with lunch. And like, they're getting the McDonald's food. But what I thought was interesting is that this is one of the few movies that I saw where the police are not incompetent. Yeah. They knew what they were doing. Like every time that they were like on the scene to do something, they did like exactly what they were supposed to. And so it kind of broke away from like, I feel like, which is common in a lot of sci-fi stories that the police or like whatever enforcing uh, presence is there is always sort of not able to do their job. Um, it like it reminds me of like the stormtroopers who just like can't. Yeah, they can't. Shit. Yeah, they're not actually that dangerous. Right. Uh, it's it's sort of like um, yeah, I think a lot of sci-fi does that because a lot of it's trying to do like a critique on authority. Yes. And like authority thinks that it knows what it's doing, but it really doesn't. But yeah. It makes your world more dangerous and makes the authority more dangerous if the if they're actually competent. Yeah, and in this case, they're really good. Like, they're on top of their yeah, shit. They've got all yeah. the communication. Yep. Even though they're still, ca- but the thing is, they don't they don't take away like the classic like cop trope of like being like a like an overweight like right. an overweight dude. Yeah. They just have a lot of gear. Yeah, 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 exactly. And they're able to like still manage their jobs. And it's everything. not that they're incompetent. It's just that they're fat and have bad cardio. That's really all we know. <laughs> I can only assume it's like the future where they have so much things to assist them mm-hmm. that their sort of like weight gain and loss is not really a huge issue. Um, because as far as I can tell, no one really makes any commentary about how someone looks. Mm-mm. There's really no, besides like when they're like, oh, Lilu is like perfect. But, but even then they don't say anything specific like, yeah, but, but it is, it should be noted that they say she's perfect anytime they see her naked. <laughs> so it's like, so there was those moments where like, she just changes cause she doesn't care about what's going on. She's not like, yeah. Uh, she's not fearing that someone's going to see her a certain way. So they like, but the thing is, is that they always turned around. They were yeah. always like, they, they Oh tur- shit. They, they turn around. Um, the first time she, like when she first gets made, they're, they're, they're just standing there and kind of doing like a, she's perfect. Yeah. And then like, you know, the guy f- uh, fills it in for him. And then there's a time when, um, the priest and Corbin turn around while she's changing because she just like rips off her clothes. Yeah. Don't give a fuck about who's around. She's just trying to get dressed. Yeah, exactly. And so, so that ends up happening. It happens like three times, but, um, 
nothing is ever shown. And same with like a lot of the violence. There's not really anything that like you see directly. You sort of get like an idea of what's going on mm-hmm. with the exception maybe of him like reaching into her, <laughs> into the diva's stomach to get the stones out. But even mm-hmm. that, like it's blue. So it wasn't yeah. even really like, it's like green. Blue. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, I don't know what they use for that, but it was like a green goo. corn syrup. Yeah. It really did look like, <laughs> they were corn just syrup. like, we'll use green instead of red. <laughs> um, so they get the tickets and the priest and his younger, I guess, trainee. I don't know what to call him. Mm-hmm. He was kind of insignificant for most of the story, but he tries to get him to go with Lilu to this uh, winning contest so that they can get the stones from the diva. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't work out at all for them because Corbin actually shows up and replaces him and gets on the plane or ship shuttle, whatever it is with Lilu. And that's how they get over to where the diva's at. And the story continues at that point. Um, I think what was funny is at this point you get to meet, uh, what's his name? Um, Ruby, Ruby, Rod. Ruby, Ruby, Rod. Yeah, Ruby, Ruby Rod. Rod. His name is already hilarious because yeah. it's Rod, but it's and like it's an alliteration. Yeah. <laughs> alliteration is Ruby Rod. And he's like this icon and this radio star who is like broadcasting to all of the universe and everyone knows who he is, but he's interesting because he's a very feminine character played by who was it again? Uh, Chris Tucker, Chris Tucker, who he's wearing like a like skin tight suit that has roses on the top and it's very and feminine he's got looking. like the leopard the leopard print yes. like skin tight oh, thing that's right he with has, like the yeah. big poofy like thing around his yeah. neck and then his hair is ridiculous looking and I love it's got it. like the it looks like i it looks like a tube just coming out of the yeah. top of his head yeah, it's yeah. like the most ridiculous afro like pompadour, pompadour i've ever seen yes exactly <laughs> oh that's exactly what it is it's yeah an it's an afro, afro pompadour yeah, yeah. yeah. it's just like there you go that's, that's what great. i would describe it um, um he's like <laughs> He ends up being so as far as we can assume, he's a straight character. So he, he like tries to get it on with all the women that he encounters. Yeah, every every one of the flight attendants, yeah, he's most like of the flight attendants. all of them. Yeah. Like. And they're all obsessed with him too. Yeah. Because like he, they like his voice, they hear him on the radio. Even like the 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 short little bits when he runs up to them and is like whispering in their ear. And it's such a it's such a great breaking of the male stereotype that they had for these characters, where like he's very feminine, but he's also very straight and nobody questions him on it it's like yo i could be anything i could be i could be your man <laughs> my man your man and, and he's just trying like, so oh. hard trying so hard to get a word out of corbin and corbin's not having it no and he's... so he's like no i don't want to be a part of this show and he's supposed to be on with him for like, like kobe couple hours yeah <laughs> kobe gotta be like i just love it. he calls him kobe yeah, all the time that's great I just I just think of Kobe Bryant every time, and I just feel Pretty like much. I feel like there should he should just follow Kobe Bryant. And be like Kobe, you gotta right. go, gotta go get your new tennis well, they, shoes. <laughs> they insert him as like a very serious, uh, not serious. They insert him as like the main person who gives all of the comedy. Mm-hmm. So like he is that person who's the comic save, relief. Yeah, he's the comic relief for most of the film, and uh, but I mean he does end up helping. He, he yeah he helps a lot, and um, he ends up showing when like the action's the thickest. Yeah, he uh, he shows up. He, the comic relief shows up and melds. And this is another like example of the movie melding comedy with the serious yes. and doing it really well. Is they they give you the most ridiculous and eccentric person for like one of the most ridiculous action packed, like set of scenes. Oh, totally. And so it's like, it was, it was great. Cause they matched that energy really well. Yeah. They matched that energy really well. So it was very, uh, 
fantastic though it's, it's great i love why i love rudy robb's like just a reason to watch the movie just chris tucker's performance is just oh worth it. yeah it's just still, ma- that like makes part of the movie yeah. entirely just that it's still really funny to watch and he also goes around and just knows most of the famous people mm-hmm. uh i think even at one point he says he has like a recording of someone's daughter and it's like her moaning, basically. And he like, <laughs> I was like, I'll show you that later after the show. Because he's just been like going around having sex with a bunch of people. And so it's like they established that this character, he's, he's well connected. He knows people. Um, and like nothing about him is questioned. He even has like an entourage that follows him and like loves everything he does. Mm-hmm. And he like constantly is trying to get like their approval. And is like, what do you think? What did you think of it? And then they don't, he doesn't like their answers. So he like shoes them away. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's I, great. Yeah. This is totally uh, sorry, but I saw it. What is I don't know if I showed you that, but I saw a magic card altar that was Rudy Rogers. Yes, you sent it and to it's me. For cancel is what the spell was. But anyway, but off topic. So continue. you totally sent that one to me and it was great. Was I love that. Funny. No, it worked out well. And I think it's cool that they inserted a character like this because uh, you have Corbin, who is that typical male character who is he's very like he's masculine. He's masculine. Yep. Um, and he wasn't excessively masculine. Nope. So, like, he was masculine enough. He was trying to understand how people are feeling. Um, he seems like a, a person. Of, yeah, he was a real, like, <laughs> he yeah, he's a real like person. A person who lifted weights and was in the military. And so, you know what? Now that I think about it, I wonder if they inserted Ruby Rod's character as sort of, like... So, there's something in film critical analysis in like the 50s and the 60s where they had the very straight male character and then they had sort of a person who was opposite of him who they usually would call like a dandy character and so but but this is different because the dandy character was usually gay Mm -hmm. and they didn't want anything to do with women whereas in this case he is a dandy character but he's also straight so it was a breaking of that stereotype and representing different types of masculinity in the same movie putting the flip on a film technique or a yeah. uh, what is it, or a narrative choice yeah yeah exactly yeah. I, so, I like it yeah. that's very cool they even ha- well so it could be argued that they had several forms of masculinity in the film they had corbin they had ruby rod they had the priest mm-hmm. um, cornelius who is an older man he's religious mm-hmm. he's really respectful and that's sort of like he's a devout person mm-hmm. and then you also have the president who yeah. is like a very political and stern person, but he's understanding of like the situation. Mm-hmm. So you get all of those yeah. in one. As and you have Zorg, it. who's not masculine, really. No, yeah, he's, he's interesting. He's, yeah, he's very much the uh, that villain that relies on his henchmen to get stuff done. Yeah, he kind of deal. He actually does not do anything until the very end of the film. Where even then, he, I mean, he still fails. The, the best part about Zorg in this movie is that he doesn't really encounter any of the protagonists except for Lilu for a moment. And then he do, he just doesn't encounter he never encounter he doesn't really ever You're encounter right. Corbin yeah or or Rudy Rod or any of the he encounters Lilu briefly yeah and shoots at her and that's and, then and that's it and then he wants to, uh, to blow it up and leaves he talks to Cornelius who yeah. ends up saving his life because he's like choking on a grape and so that was interesting how will all your machines help you now is there you know a, do you have a button for that <laughs> he had a really interesting argument though so do you remember the scene where he's sitting at his desk and he has a glass and he throws it off of the the desk and mm-hmm. is like look at all the little machines that are coming out to clean oh this. yes yes how um how destruction creates creates more than creation does yeah he's essentially arguing that a bit of chaos can help life mm-hmm. and it, it sort of it uh, keeps it, life going yeah it keeps it going and so like it's a really interesting point that he brings up that the robots were designed by somebody by engineers who are going to get paid because they made those things and now mm-hmm. they have a purpose mm-hmm. they're cleaning up 
him throwing his glass off the table. But then it sort of gets all unraveled when he's trying to save himself from choking and nothing mm-hmm. can help him mm-hmm. except for the other person in the room, Cornelius, who yep. he does help him because he's not a terrible person. Nope. He even helps the villain. Yeah. And so he, Cornelius. Yeah, gives him a big pat on the back and he spits yeah. out the cherry. He's choking on a cherry is yep. what it is. Um, and so that was interesting, but they, they really got into those moments for a little bit where they're like really getting into how people interact with each other. And then they would bring you back to the action and sort of the comedy of the movie. Um, and so towards the, towards the end there, they, uh, they're going to exchange the stones. So they know that Lilu is there. They know the diva is there. The diva is expecting her. Mm-hmm. And so she's like, I'll give you the stones after the, the mm-hmm. concert. Yeah, and they do they do a pretty good job of keeping that of keeping the fact that their plan is a little bit subtle. Yes, um, and they do that interestingly by showing the perspective of the diva, and she makes eye contact with Lilu immediately. Yeah, and it's just like you over. She doesn't say anything. She just looks at her and stares at her for like a decent amount of time, and then leaves the scene. Yeah, and they so they know of each other's presence, which I can only guess the diva has sort of met that perfect being before, mm-hmm. and this is just a different version of that person, and so. They don't give any sort of uh, numbers on age for anybody. So the diva could be very old at this point mm-hmm. and has just been around for a while. But it goes straight into her singing, which is still phenomenal. It's, it's so good. It's so good. I love that whole. Like I would watch like that scene in the movie is just great. Her whole like little performance right. and everything. Well, even uh, her fantastic soprano. <laughs> well, even her uh, her singing performance is sci-fi. Mm-hmm. supposedly there's no one like alive that has that octave range mm-hmm. to be able to go like all the way up there and then mm-hmm. all the way back down and so i think they in like post-production they just had multiple singers and they like meshed it together to make her singing i mean there's people that i mean sopranos sopranos yeah, have a knack close. for hitting for hitting really like those are like if i'm not mistaken sopranos are like the high note singers yeah um, and she does, she goes down a lot of octaves cause she just like, Oh, yeah. like she just like all the way down yeah. and just like, Oh girl, I feel it. Like you're just like, Oh my God. I got like, you're just like, and oh, it's everybody so good. watching is mesmerized. They're like, this yeah. is like the coolest con- concert. And then it like, it, but it busts into like, it starts off with like very, like, like very like, uh, classical opera, opera sort yes. of deal. And then it busts into like this, like pop, like dance track numbers. Yes. Sort of, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fucking cool as they hell. end up matching her singing with Lilu's fighting as well. Yep, that's when also... she is beating up. Uh, I don't know what the mercenaries were called. I forget their names. Yeah, too. they're like the, I remember. I forget them. They're essentially like the only they're sort space of... works. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Honestly, they're the space works. Basically, the only context you get is that the Confederation that the you, that the Earth is a part of uh, sort of disbanded them and like kind of like didn't treat them as like equals to everybody. And mm-hmm. so they wanted their revenge, which is why they aligned with Zorg to try to get back at people and to help this like ultimate evil. And so that's really the only context you get other than like that. They just sort of want to do things for money and they need weapons for their like rebellion. Mm-hmm. And so they end up just proceeding with that story, but they are there on the ship as well. And they're, and they, they take over the ship at one point. Cause they're like, fuck it. We're trying to do this subtly, but we need to just take over the ship mm-hmm. and figure things out. And this is when the diva gets shot mm-hmm. and she falls off stage very dramatically, mm-hmm. uh, as like any real performer should in those <gasps> scenes. And like, yeah, just the most dramatic fall. And then Corbin pulls her aside. And then, uh, this is an interesting conversation she has with him. She like tells him that, uh, Lilu like needs him. Mm-hmm. And that uh, what she's going and to and your need, love, yeah, she, she needs, needs you and yeah, your love. she needs you and your love, and it's uh, but it isn't necessarily like um, that she's so helpless. 
It was more no. of like she needs that connection to continue being that perfect yep. being. To complete the ritual to save the world. Right. Essentially to like, yeah, to save the world. And then she just she does it very vaguely and is like, well, the stones aren't in me. And then he's like, what the fuck? Like, what do you mean in you? And then he's like, oh, it's literally like in your stomach. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and like pulls them out, gives them the ruby. And then that's when he, the all of the action, I think, for most of the movie happens. <laughs> he gives Rudy the gun and is just like, here, hold that. the gun on here. And he's like, Kobe, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing, Kobe. <laughs> just like, I love that where he's like, I don't. I don't feel right. This is it. Right, and then just ends up shooting the guy and he's on like, oh, accident. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. He like tries to put his face back together. I love that. <laughs> that made me laugh so much when I saw that. Um, and that's, that's pretty much when they have to like escape and they have to get through everything. And so it goes through all of the action scenes. And of course, Corbin is highly capable the entire time. He's very much like, you don't feel like he's going to be threatened at any point. Mm-hmm. Like he's going to get killed. Um, I love the scene with the other famous person who is deaf, the like the big bulky blonde dude who is like supposed to be a movie star, and he's across from him behind a bar, and he's like, "I need the gun, like throw the gun oh, over to me." The, he throws the, he the throws two, two cue balls <laughs> over to him, and it's such a hilarious joke because it's like he doesn't know what was going on. He just throws over these two balls at him. It's super gay. Like he was obviously like meant to be a gay innuendo is what they're doing with that. And then he's like, thanks. Thanks. That's yeah. That's exactly what I need it right now. <laughs> and it's just, it's a really funny here, moment. Here are some balls. And he's just like, he's super, he's like, oh yeah, thank, yeah. I'm glad I helped you. I think I missed the gay innuendo there. Right. Well, it's just cause like the character himself, he's another character like Ruby. He was, uh, he's really feminine. He was dressed like in like a floral, like see-through shirt mm. basically. Um, but of course in that scene, there's like multiple women like hanging off him. So like they, they were really playing with the idea that in this universe, uh, like the total masculinity and only being that was appealing to people. Mm-hmm. It was the opposite. There was a lot of feminine characters, feminine men who were attractive to women in mm-hmm. the series. So that was pretty funny. Um, and then they, so this is when Zorg shows up, right? He's like, you got to do something yourself. And he goes back and he mm-hmm. tries to find the stones and fails again, basically. Mm-hmm. He gets the box and realizes that there's nothing in them. <laughs> and he's just like again. freaking out. He like sits in the uh, spaceship while he's going away. There's only like 15 minutes until the bomb explodes. And then he gets back in and is just like, okay. And this is when he drops in the little key card to stop the bomb and realizes that those uh, mercenaries brought their own bomb. Yeah. And then that sets up and when they lose, when they do for the rebellion. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh no. Yep, and yeah. Then, and he's only got five seconds. I love that. Uh, Ruby was like, that was the best show ever. Like that was my, like that was the best show <laughs> I've ever done. Ever yeah. <laughs> Cause it was, which apparently it's from five to seven or four to seven, five to seven. Mm-hmm. So it was like all of that happened in like two hours. Yeah. Uh, like like their time Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to like what we had seen um but then it doesn't end there so they escape the they escape the exploding ship and they're like yeah everything is fine like we're gonna get these and then um that's when they get uh notice or they get um informed that the planet the evil planet that was hanging out before is now moving towards earth and so they're like now it turns into like a time crunch for them to get over and figure out how the stones work, yep. which is probably one of the funnier scenes because they don't know how they work just yet. And they end up having to figure out that the elements are what really set them off. And it's very I feel like that's like an old story archetype that you need sort of all the elements to come together. Yeah. And that the final element is like human existence, basically, and love and that experience. 
And so that's where they sort of end on like a cheesy note. But mm. I think I liked, I liked the blending of the comedy. I liked mm. that there was just enough sci-fi to cover the ridiculousness of everything that was going on. The movie is like not too serious. It doesn't take itself too seriously. And that's, and that's one thing that I really like about it as well is, you know, they do, they do the really, really good blending of like the serious and the comedy and then the sci-fi as well, but they don't take any of it too seriously. And they just try to try to make like a fun movie and then put a little bit of lore in there. Oh yeah. yeah. He must've created his own bits of lore for the movie so that he could just continue like that. So he did a lot of world building, mm-hmm. but just enough to like get you through the story and you don't have to worry too much yep. about like these other things. I, like I wouldn't want a fifth element too. No, it was There's a no great reason. standalone film. Yeah, it doesn't need a sequel. Um, they would also probably, they'd probably have to like create a, like the rest of their love story basically. Yeah. And that would be really boring. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. I don't care. They're together. Great. Right. Done. Um, I feel like if they did something like that, it would have to be like the possibility of them not being together. Mm-hmm. That they sort of just like came together for a moment and then they figured out that they weren't right for each other um, would probably be the like better sto- version of that story. But either way, the film sort of to me, uh, it aged kind of well. There isn't too much about it where I'm like, oh, this is like an awful movie. It did really well for critics. Got like a. Ninety something. It has it has like a like a cult following. It came in one of those definitely cult a cult following. Had a very uh, from what I've read, its reception when it came out was very mixed. Yeah, they didn't know what to make of it because yeah, it's it weird. Such, yeah, it's a weird story. There's nothing. There's no other movie like The Fifth Element. Not that I can think of. No, I, like there's lots of sci-fi, but there's nothing that's The Fifth Element. No, it's, and it also seems to be like they didn't go too extravagant with all of the weapons or the CGI. Grounded. It was like grounded. it was very believable for the world that they lived in. Mm-hmm. They weren't doing anything super crazy, and that you would be like, ah, I don't know if like something like that would work out. They, they didn't take very much time to like get you into the science of what's going on. They were just like, this is it, this is how it works, and you don't have to worry about it. Like even like their sleep chambers, you just assume that they got in and like whatever was in there would put them to sleep, and then they would wake up when they got to their location. So like little bits like that, you just didn't question it. And I think that's well done for, like, the writer and for the director and, like, sort of the art direction they chose for the movie where nothing really seems out of place. All of it fits in. They have, like, a good color gradient through the whole film, and all of it sort of blends together. There's nothing that sort of sticks out. The only thing I have to say that kind of bothered me was the diva's makeup and look because mm-hmm. when you got a close-up look on her, it looked like a latex suit, basically. Yep, yep. They, they, they definitely – I feel like there was a part of the budget that did not go into that suit. <laughs> <laughs> they like, I think they put her in her suit and then they painted her face blue. Yeah. And I think that's sort of where they she went. isn't, isn't she's on display for a very short amount of time yeah. too. So it's like, I'm sure they were just like, this is like not a major character important, but not major. So right. we're not going to do too much into it. They did more for everything else. Yes. And whatnot. I'm sure all the CGI for the time period was super expensive to do. Yeah, for real. And so, like, getting someone to do the, uh, like, you know, a suit for someone, probably not too bad. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, do you have any final thoughts on... I love The Fifth, Fifth Element. Element. That's my final thought. It's a great <laughs> fucking movie, and I forever, ever since seeing it, when I first saw it in, like, 98... Whenever that, whenever I was, when I was a child. Yeah. And until now, I've always like rewatched the movie like every couple years or so. I'll end up like being like, oh, fuck, the fifth element? Yeah. And then I'm all excited about it. I love fifth element. Yeah. Hell yeah. 